For those of you who may be new to our organization, I invite you to learn more in our current exhibition, Subscription Campaigns, which is on view here on the first floor, directly behind you as you are seated now. This show traces the Athenaeum's history in terms that seem to resonate perfectly with tonight's discussion as a series of high-risk investments made by our region's movers and shakers that yielded huge intellectual returns and shaped the cultural life of our region. In addition to visiting the exhibition galleries, we also invite all of our guests this evening to stop by the Virschbau Special Collections Reading Room on the second floor to view some of our extraordinary treasures related to the life sciences immediately following this panel discussion. I'll give you a hint about one thing you might see. It's Audubon's Birds of America. An event such as this evening's panel requires many contributions. We wish to acknowledge in particular the generous support of our sponsors, Gallagher, Santander, UMass Medical School, and Wilmer Hale. We're also deeply grateful for the ideas and efforts of our project advisors, including our trustee, Duke Collier, and our proprietor, Prescott Stewart, as well as for the hard work of our extraordinary staff. Thank you all. Thank you, Lizzie. <clears throat> Good evening, I'm John Everett. I'm a trustee of the Boston Athenaeum, and I'm delighted to be able to introduce our panel tonight. We, as we delve into the biotech industry in Boston and what it means, the parallels between what's going on in the biotech world and what happened early on in Boston in terms of capital formation are rather interesting. For over 200 years, the Boston Athenaeum has been a leading participant in Boston's cultural community. In 1807, the Athenaeum uh, grew out of the Anthology Society, uh, which had begun in 1805. A group of Bostonian scholars, risk takers, and investors who collectively contributed capital and their collections to grow and establish our collection in a process that is not dissimilar to the way capital flows to the biotech world. In fact, early on, the securities, the stock of the Boston Athenaeum was traded on the Boston Stock Exchange. Our founders established the Athenaeum as a core center of intellectual life, and we are honored to continue their legacy by providing our members with active, accessible collections and programming, the likes of which we hope you'll enjoy tonight. To help you understand the latest trends in life sciences and to show us how ideas become actual consumer and clinical products, we are joined tonight by some of the leading lights in the field, including Carl Zimmer, the science writer for the New York Times, who will act as our moderator, Nobel laureate, uh, and uh, internationally known kiteboarder, uh, Dr. Craig C. Mello, Dr. Adam Koppel, of Bain Capital Life Science Ventures, and Dr. David Meeker of KSQ Therapeutics. Uh, please refer to your programs for additional information about this distinguished group. And now I will look forward to, uh, to our panel and introduce Carl Zimmer. Thank you, John. Thank you, Lizzie. Thank you all for uh, coming. Um, just to give you a little uh, geography here, I'm Carl Zimmer, this is Craig Mello, um, and then Adam Koppel, and then uh, David Meeker is to the far right. Um, 
I, uh, I've never lived in Boston since I was 16. I spent a summer here, but I've been back periodically. And um, just last week I was here and I was just decided to take a walk one day and sort of found myself in the Kendall Square neighborhood and was kind of baffled because the, in some ways the city has changed so much just through biotechnology. The, the little physical city has changed. Um, and that's part of what we're going to talk about tonight, um, how, what's been spurring that change and where that's going to go. Um, it's been 40 years uh, since Biogen opened up shop in uh, Cambridge. Um, and uh, today, I was just looking over some statistics, uh, there are 66,000 biopharma jobs in Massachusetts, mostly in the Boston area, um, $9.2 billion in wages. Um, this is the top state for, for biotech. Uh, there's $2.9 billion in VC investment in Massachusetts in 2016 alone. Uh, Kendall is the, has the highest concentration of biotech in the world. Uh, there are 1,896 drugs in the pipeline in Massachusetts businesses. So tonight we're going to talk about um, how we got here, and um, we're going to we're going to begin by talking about basic science because that's where this all comes from. And you know, in, in the Boston area, we have Massachusetts General Hospital, we have Brigham and Women's, we have MIT, we have Harvard, we have Boston University, where all sorts of important research is going on, the kind of stuff that I report on. Um, but we're also going to talk about how those basic uh, research insights go from being just a cool discovery to being something that you might be picking up at the drugstore. Um, so, um, uh, I, I think maybe the base, the, a great basic science place to start this discussion would be with like that thing that won you that little prize. Um, so it's called RNAi, and I, um, I think for the non-PhDs among us, it might be good just to sort of like remind us what RNA is and what RNAi is and how you found it. Sure. And uh, it's with a little I, just like the iPhone. Um, and uh, I wish we had trademarked that little I. <laughs> um, so, you know, organisms have been in the information age for billions of years. And around the 90s or so, we started, you know, we developed the internet and, you know, sort of our computers became part of this, you know, information technology. We all became connected and we started using information a lot more than we used to. I mean, you know, it used to be really hard. You'd have to come to a library like this to look something up in a book, right? And now you can find almost anything, not all of these books apparently, but almost anything on your, your iPhone just by searching for it. So organisms figured this out a really, really long time ago. They had inside of the cells, and every cell in our body has this, they have a search engine. And that search engine can carry out a guided search. And it works just the same way the search engine does on your computer. You enter a short search query, and you can find almost anything. So organisms develop this as a, as a very useful tool for regulating gene expression. So by using a short piece of the gene, a, a short piece of the genetic information, loading it onto an enzyme, 
they can carry out a search and find that information inside the cell and then regulate it. So back in 1998, we discovered that this searching mechanism exists and we named it RNA interference because we could give the information to the cell in the form of an, a stretch of RNA, which is very similar in terms of its genetic composition, its building blocks to the DNA information you're all probably familiar with. You know that the genome was sequenced in also beginning right around the 90s, you know, and it, you know all of this had to come together because the genome is literally, you probably know more than, more accurately than I do. It's like billions of nucleotides, right? So billions of letters strung together makes up your genetic code. And obviously your cells had to have a way of handling that information so they had these search engines. In the 90s, we discovered that when we, we artificially could make a, a piece of RNA that would enter the search engine when we gave it to the cell. So we could program a cell to carry out a search for us. So now that is actually becoming a therapy. It's proven, it's looking very good in humans. It'll probably be the first RNA interference drug approved by a company here in Cambridge, Alnylam uh, Pharmaceuticals, uh, for treating liver disease. Uh, but theoretically, you, any, any disease that can be modified by down-regulating a, a target gene, by silencing a target gene, could be therapeutically approached by using the cell's own information handling technology that's already there in every cell. This is why people got so excited about RNA interference back in the early 2000s, because we realized, we discovered it first in a worm, um, but humans and worms are actually very similar in the way their cells work. You know, we shared three billion years of common ancestry with worms. Three billion years, that's a long time. So these machines that carry out these searches are very similar in the human cell, in the worm cell, even in plants. And so we can use the, this technology now to do these guided searches. We can modify gene expression and make drugs based on the, the information handling technology that's already present in all of your cells. So, so our own cells use RNAi on their own? Just, yes. I mean, uh, you, it's not something that you're sort of imposing on it. It's like naturally we're using these little molecules to go in there and... That's right. None of things. us would be alive right now if our RNA interference wasn't working. It's that important. There, there are genes that encode naturally in your body regulators that are loaded onto these search engines that the cell has. We call them... Uh, these, these, I wish I had a slide to show, show you because the proteins are so beautiful. They're, they're the, the proteins that carry out these searches, they're the, the beautiful, complicated structures that hold the piece of information and they, they rapidly search through the cell using the guide RNA sequence to find matching information and they precisely, they can precisely find it because when the when the nucleotides match up, the RNA can base pair, forming that beautiful spiral structure that Watson and Crick discovered, only it's between an RNA strand and a DNA strand. It's extremely precise. And it's essential, it's already, it's already at work in all of our cells, so what the obstacle to making a drug out of this has been figuring out how to efficiently deliver it 
into a patient so that it can get into the right cells to be able to affect uh, this kind of therapeutic silencing of the target gene. When, when, so when, when, it, when you started to um, realize what this was and started to understand this whole system in our cells, um, did, it, did, it, did you think immediately like, oh, this could be medically useful? Or did that sort of dawn on you or someone else later? Well, uh, yes, we, we of course realized that it would be very, very, it was already very useful in the laboratory. In fact, a lot of companies would sell you uh, siRNAs, we call them, the small RNAs that do the silencing. You can order them from a catalog. And I, when I give a talk at a high school, I could tell them, you know, if you wanted to do silence a gene, you could order the siRNA and it would be here by FedEx tomorrow <laughs> and anybody could order it. The companies will guarantee that it works or your money back. And that's because when you're delivering it to cells in a culture dish, it works really, really well. You know, so we knew it would work, uh, but that was, and that was back in the early 2000s and it was, you know, it was work from many different labs that sort of all, you know, converged on uh, this mechanism because it exists not only in worms, but uh, in 1998 we published our paper describing the phenomenon, and then in 99 we discovered the first gene involved. And when we identified this gene that was required in the worm to carry out this function, it turned out that humans had eight copies of that gene, eight different copies that you know were you know very well conserved, very similar to the worm gene. And so a lot of other labs started working on the human genes. We continued to work on the worm genes, and we discovered that some of the worm genes that were closely related to some of the, the worms actually have 26 different genes. So in other words, they have like, you know, you have Google and Yahoo and all these other search engines you could use. Worms have the same thing. They have diff different cells express different versions of this search engine, uh, you know, brand and they carry out different kinds of searches. It's, it's really a fascinating field of biology that people are still working on. And I should add that it turns out that CRISPR, which you probably have all heard about by now, is a bacterial version of the same kind of search mechanism, an RNA-guided search, but in this case, it targets DNA and therefore can be used to do permanent genome editing, whereas the RNA interference mechanism targets the messenger RNA and so it transiently turns off the gene. And so they, once the molecules are gone, those, gene that gene can be active uh, again. Before, uh, be, before I uh, uh, ask Adam a question, I, uh, so, uh, so uh, you mentioned El Nylum, this, this company that has um, been working a lot with, with RNAi. Um, and so they, uh, they have a, dr a drug whose name I'm going to butcher. Patisseran. Patisseran, okay. Um, so, so this is a drug for a rare disease called uh, trans... I'm going to let you pronounce it. <laughs> I wish you wouldn't. All right. <laughs> Transthyretin amyloidosis? Right. It's a, it's a very serious uh, hypercholesteremia disease that is invariably fatal um, midlife onset. It's very... Tra I mean, people... It's one of those untreatable monogenic genetic disorders that, you know, unfortunately... Uh, happens late in life, so a lot of times people have already had kids, the kids might be affected. It's not unlike Huntington disease in that regard, 
Um, and there, you know, there's a lot of these fairly orphan diseases where there's a causative gene that's known, but there's nothing we can do about it. So the idea is to, to use RNAi to just quiet that gene down? Right. So where do things stand? They, you know, it's really looking very good. I mean, it, one of the things that's turned out to be fascinating about the mechanism of these, this action of these things, they're, they're a natural mechanism. They're already there. And once you load this with, you know, this drug gets loaded onto this natural mechanism, it remains active for a really long time. So they're getting, uh, from a single sub-Q injection, they're getting uh, six months to a year of knockdown. So it's almost like you're being vaccinated. And uh, this kind of injection can be delivered at home. So alnylam has a whole pipeline now of drugs that are following on this. Uh, and the other beautiful thing about the drug discovery process, once we have delivery to a target, then you can make a new drug simply by changing the nucleotide sequence of the, you know, the, the delivery part of the drug is, is, in this case, it's a conjugate that is taken up by the liver very rapidly. Mm -hmm. so it's called a galmac. I, I just want to ask, can you hear us in the back? I know there's a bit of a sound, sound problem. There's a sound problem. Um, I'm not sure what we can do down here, but um, we'll, we'll just try to speak up as much as we can. Okay, so I'll, I'll translate now. <laughs> uh, things, are looking, things are looking interesting for, uh, for, for Craig's, Craig's joke. <laughs> um, so I'm sorry, I, I just, I well, just yeah, wanted to check, but like please go on. Fix that. Um, so, yeah, it's very easy to switch your, your target by just changing the sequence information uh, so that, you know, you can target a, a new gene. And any gene expressed in the liver can be targeted pretty much now using siRNA by sub-Q delivery of an siRNA. We call them these small interfering RNAs, uh, SI, small interfering RNA. Um, so it's a, as a type of therapeutic, it has a lot of potential. Um, we're actually starting a new company uh, with some colleagues at UMass that we have very nice uh, delivery in the brain. Um, so we're starting a company where the lead indication will be Huntington. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and then, you know, you can follow with drugs that target ALS or uh, down the road, we will need to partner to do bigger things like Alzheimer's disease. But um, as a drug or a therapeutic modality, the sort of the dream, I think, is coming true for siRNA is that they're going to be another real sort of, you know, type of therapeutic. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we have the monoclonals and the small molecules, and now uh, siRNAs for gene knockdown mm -hmm. are going to be, I think, a very important new therapeutic approach. Great. So, Adam, I, I want to bring you into the conversation. Uh, um, you know, we've been talking, focusing a lot on, on sort of basic biology. Um, but uh, obviously, you know, the, we're talking about research that Craig was was publishing as long ago as 20 years ago. I mean, this this does this takes this takes a while to and, and a lot of money to 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 make it uh, into even to this sort of stage. I mean, um, I mean, what give, give people a sense of sort of what's their sort of the basic kind of kind of life history um, of of going from basic research to an approved drug from the sort of the from the VC perspective. I mean, what what does it take? What 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 should people understand about about it? 
A lot of luck. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, it is, uh, it is really interesting the time it takes for great basic scientific discovery to be translated into something relevant to impact the human condition, unmet medical needs for humans. Because after all, that's where value is created for society. It's great that we do the basic science work, but the goals for it to have impact on all of us is to ask the question, what has to happen to impact our family members, our relatives, our neighbors, other people that live in the country? Because this, a lot of time, disease has a massive impact both emotionally, socially, and also financially. So the question is, how do you decide where to allocate the risk capital? What are the most important problems to go after? And what is the return profile going to be, not just in financial return, but of course investors do think about financial return, but also kind of societal return. Where are you gonna get the biggest impact? I would say that what you were talking about, the discovery made in 98, 99, and so forth, I believe is gonna have a huge impact on the human condition. It's gonna be able to have an impact on many different diseases, not just TTR, which is the first one you're talking about, which does seem extremely promising to come to the market within a year. But if we think about it, your, your most important paper, which you were cited for, as you told me, was in 1998, and it's likely that we're gonna see a drug approved, let's say in a year, so it took about 20 years for that to happen. There was a major, a couple, another major discovery in the cystic fibrosis gene that happened in the early 90s as well. And now there's another great company, in addition to Almylam, that's leveraging the work that you did. There's another great company in the Boston ecosystem called Vertex, which is, which is having these great discoveries and great new drugs developed for cystic fibrosis. Why don't you just remind everyone like, about cystic fibrosis, like what it is, what the symptoms are, and then we sure. can talk about this sure. cystic fibrosis and it's story. A very similar, it's a very similar story. Cystic fibrosis is actually, it wasn't known what it was for a very long time. In fact, the name cystic fibrosis is not very indicative of what the disease actually is. What the disease cystic fibrosis is, it's, it's an effect of a channel, an ion channel, chloride channel, that we all have in our lungs, um, and other parts of the body, which is to try to help clear out the mucus that builds up. If you can't clear out the mucus in your lungs, you have a heavy-duty mu mucus buildup, you get infections, you don't breathe very well, and it's hard to live very long without being able to breathe very well. And people that are unfortunately afflicted with cystic fibrosis spend much of their lives just treating their own disease uh, and not really just treating the symptoms of their disease, not impacting the underlying disorder causing their disease. But in the same way as when you were doing the work to identify um, RNAi, RNA interference, there are other people doing work to say, what is causing cystic fibrosis? They identified the gene. They then went on to identify how could you, what goes wrong with the gene that makes people have this disease? And then they interrogated that with chemistry, and that's when Vertex came into the picture. Uh, after they, um, you know, open, they actually acquired a site in San Diego for the sole purpose of trying to solve the problem of cystic fibrosis. And I would say it was some of the most incredible data that they showed five or six years ago, and a, first a small subset of the patients, but now they have equally almost as compelling data in a much wider subset. And I don't think the purpose is to, is to go into history lesson of cystic fibrosis, but I think it's important to understand this is an important disease that affects a lot of people in our society that really, sh like, 
causes a massive decrease in life expectancy of the people that are afflicted with it, and they spend much of their life dealing with it. And so you had a, you had a company with a vision that says, we are going to solve this problem. And it took probably, I'm making this number up, I don't actually know the answer, but I'm going to say probably in the billions of dollars to solve the problem. Where does that money go? I mean, why is that so expensive? Well, first of all, the question is, where does that money come from? And then where does that money go? I mean, <laughs> first things first. Let me restate the question. Yeah. Where does that billion of dollars yeah. worth capital come from? Do tell. So that comes from a lot of different sources. Thankfully, there are a lot of different constituencies that want to see this terrible disease eradicated, or at least controlled. And so that money comes first from um, foundations that are put out there to help patients with cystic fibrosis. In the case of cystic fibrosis, it's actually a very interesting story because the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation actually contributed a lot of the risk capital that went to coming up for the drugs. They worked in concert with Vertex to develop these drugs. They subsequently found themselves sitting on a multi-billion dollars of value for a couple tens of millions of an investment. But back then, when people saw that the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation was going to invest alongside Vertex to say, yep, this is interesting. We believe this is going to have impact. That then had an impact on government and what we call non-dilutive financing. It also had an impact where there's a lot more capital, which is private investors, so the investors or institutional investors that are kind of compensated to put risk capital towards the best programs. And when you see the Cystic, Fib the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation say, Vertex is onto something. We're going to invest alongside them. And then you see governments come in and say, we should pull some capital in this direction. All of a sudden, a lot of different investors like where I come from said, we also like what Vertex is doing. So there was a lot of capital going towards solving this problem. There's a very similar story, which is behind cystic fibrosis, and I'll just mention it because it's in the news a lot lately, called Duchenne muscular dystrophy, or DMD. Very similar to cystic fibrosis in terms of the timing of when that gene was identified, understood what was going wrong, understood what had to happen to try to fix it. And there's another company also in Boston called Sarepta, and other smaller companies, Solid Biosciences, uh, and Pfizer's also working on this, that are trying to come up with disease-modifying approaches to really control or even cure these, these, these ailments. And it all stems from basic research that happened 20 years prior to actually getting into the clinic. Now, you also then ask, I'm sorry if I'm going on too long, but you no, also no, ask, no, this is where great. does the money go? Yeah, billions of dollars. It's really hard one drug. to go from the tissue culture to then the worms to then animals. And somehow the FDA wants to see a lot of animals being studied. The FDA is a regulatory body that we all love in the United States um, that tries to protect us. Uh, from, you know, tries to make sure that if you're going to experiment with a new therapeutic on a person, that there's enough safety data uh, to get them comfortable to, to, to be used, and that's usually done in animals. That takes a long time. And then it takes a really long time to study it appropriately in humans, right? So there's a big bar to go from tissue culture to animals, to go from animals to then say, have a regulatory body, the FDA, or in Europe, the EMA, to say, we now know enough about this. We know enough about what dose we should use. We know enough to say it's getting to the right place at the right time. You mentioned the delivery, critically important. And we also know enough to say that we're going to do more good than harm if we test this. So they give you a license to say you can go test this. But then it takes three, five, almost sometimes up to 10 years to do all the adequate testing in humans. And humans are not tissue culture. And humans are not controlled animals. They're not rodents in a cage. They're not even 
I don't want to talk about the other animals. We could get someone to get upset. But it, humans, have, there's a lot of variety in humans. And you don't exactly know how each human is going to respond to a therapeutic. And so the hardest question and the most money, I believe, is spent to better understand how to best use a new therapeutic to optimize the effect, the positive effect you're looking for, and better understand and also minimize the deleterious effect that always comes. I say oxygen has a negative effect on humans if misused. Water has a negative effect on humans if misused. These are thought of as the most innocuous, prolific drug. We all need oxygen, we all need water, but we can also, have, we can also get sick because of too much oxygen and too much water. So imagine if you're giving someone a drug that's manipulating these important proteins you're talking about. So it's really, where that money goes is just to make sure that we, as the, as the industry that's going to commercialize these drugs, know as much about them such that we can use them in all of us and our family members and our friends and our neighbors uh, as safely and effectively as possible. That's where the money goes. David, let me bring you into the conversation at this point because I want you to talk about what it's like um, managing uh, these companies as, as they try to, to, to work this transformation. Um, and, I mean, you have had a, you know, a long career um, starting as a physician at Cleveland Clinic and going to Genzyme, and then Sanofi acquires Gen, uh, merges with, with uh, Genzyme. But just in October, you took on a new job. Um, so tell us a little bit about this company that, uh, where, where you're now at, and I think this will take us back to CRISPR again, which I'm sure everybody hears about all the time, but tell us about your company, and then let's talk about CRISPR and how CRISPR works, and then what you're doing with it as a company. So I'm trying to uh, give this part of the story in a uh, concise way, so maybe a little bit about... Uh, my thinking, um, personally, I left uh, Genzyme and then Sanofi Genzyme, so a large biotechnology company, which then became part of a large pharmaceutical company, 110,000 people. And um, people always say, what was, you know, what was your impression or experience there? Just the, the sheer magnitude, managing at scale, and how do you do science at scale? So, uh, so it was an incredible experience, but I, I left that experience... Um, in my 20 years plus in that environment, uh, convinced that we can do things in a better way. Um, you know, as both Greg and Adam have highlighted, this is an incredibly high-risk industry, and most things fail. Arguably, nine out of ten things that go into the clinic. So the day you start your first human trial, statistics would say, you know, nine out of ten of those things are going to fail. Now, there's a lot behind that number we could debate, but the point is high risk. And then it takes forever. <laughs> and so you put those two together, and it's just, you know, why anybody would invest in this industry is a miracle. I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, 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 it's truly. And, you know, the, there's the return side, as Adam said, which is, you know, every once in a while something hits, and, of course, you get a return, but there are a lot of failures on that way. So when I was looking for what I wanted to do next, it was like there's got to be a better way. And... Uh, the small company that I joined, KSQ Therapeutics, was two years old, and they were using this cutting edge, literally cutting edge, technology called CRISPR-Cas9, which, uh, as Greg highlighted, is a little bit like the RNAi in that system, and he'll correct my butchered science, but think of it as a tool which allows you to cut a gene. And when you couple that tool with this 
guide, this very precise guide using the RNA you know, piece of uh, uh, nucleotide sequence that Greg was talking about. So it can guide that cutting tool to exactly where you want in the gene. So therapeutically, that's incredible, but like, could be incredible, but like many things in science where you get an amazing breakthrough, translating it to the practical use in a human, and when I say practical, which organ, how do you deliver it, how long will it last, will it hurt, I mean really basic questions, that incredible science has to travel that incredible practical journey. And CRISPR is much younger than RNAi. CRISPR is extremely new. So what we do, to cut to the chase, is we use that tool to knock out genes. So we're working in cancer, and the questions we ask are, if you take a cancer cell line in a Petri dish, and you said, if I knock out each one of these genes one at a time, which is the gene which, when knocked out, kills that cancer cell? Now, this is an experiment that people have been doing for ages and all over. What we do differently, and what I think the world has often missed, is we often have a hypothesis which says, I think that gene's important. So I read it in the literature, I did some work, so I go to my Petri dish, I knock that gene out, and it kills cancer cells. Hypothesis confirmed. So now I'm going to go in the clinic. But what I didn't realize was that it killed cancer cells, but it also kills everything else. And that's the <laughs> challenge with oncology. And often we don't figure that out until we get into the clinic. But we're so excited because we had such an amazing result, we don't want to give up when we get in the clinic. So we get in the clinic and there's toxicity, and we say, oh, well, we just didn't have the right dose. If we just tweak the dose, if we lower the dose a little bit, we're going to find that window where this drug is safe and that amazing killing effect I can harness that to treat oncology. So over and over again, it's failed. So what we do is we knock out every gene, all 20,000 genes in, each, in that cancer cell line and ask which is the best. But then we've done that over 600 cancer cell lines. And so we can ask, when you put all of that massive data together, not only do we ask which ones killed the cancer cells, but which one only killed a small subset of the cancer cells and didn't kill all the others because that's the profile we want. Potent, but selective. And then we do one other experiment, which is well underway. So you, I'm sure you've all heard about, or maybe you haven't heard about, but PD-1, there's a revolution in immuno-oncology. And this is why it's so exciting, and in fact, why people do invest, because the immuno-oncology revolution is, historically, the way we've treated cancers is the way I said. We give you a drug which kills cells, and we hope we can kill more cancer cells <laughs> than we do your normal cells. And it's always this incredible tension between the cancer and your health. And most of the time, at the end, you lose. We lose. But immuno-oncology, because we can never get the last cell, right? You can never drive it down to that last cell. Immuno-oncology says we have these T cells and other cells, but these T cells are ones that most people are working with, which fight organisms, as an example. You know, when we get sick, organisms enter the body, our immune system says, whoop, for an invader, attack, eliminate, and we're good. In many, or not most cases, cancer is recognized as foreign, and our immune system wants to take it out. 
But the cancer has learned how to protect itself from that, that immune attack. And so this new drug, called PD-1 for short here, was a way of unlocking that shield. It kept where the cancer has put up the shield. When we treated with this anti-PD-1, it broke the shield. And so suddenly the body could see the cancer and the cancer. And you probably all heard um, the Jimmy Carter story. Jimmy Carter stands up and says, I have cancer to the brain, melanoma cancer. So one of the worst cancers, it's in my brain, a guaranteed death sentence. And then several months later, Jimmy Carter stands up and says, the cancer is gone. And he got an immune therapy. He got this anti-PD-1 and his immune system took out the tumor. So we're focused on that and looking for other drugs that can lock by using CRISPR, again, to interrogate the cells. So, so that you would, so you, so you're, you're going to take this basic knowledge you're gaining about cancer cells and these particular essential genes, and you're going to try to find a way to use that information to, to train the immune system to go after these particular cancer cells? Yeah, so I described two experiments. Okay, so, so these are separate. Yeah, so in the one, we find these genes that are important, and then we're going to look for drugs. And we're going to do that in the old conventional way. Now, Which is what? The old conventional way is to say, <laughs> I have the gene, I make the protein, and we can do some things to understand which part of the protein is the active site, and then I'm going to look for a drug that can bind that. And the way we look for a drug that will block that active site is we take a library of hundreds of thousands of compounds, and we just put them through in what they call high-throughput screening, which just says we try each one of these compounds in a, in a small experiment to say, did it block, did it block, did it block? And we look for something that blocked, and then we start from there, and we start doing chemistry to make it into a drug. So laborious, but time-proven and the like. But again, science has moved. So we do that, but there's now four or five other techniques which can be used to try to answer the question, what could block the active site? So that's one thing we do. And then the other thing we're going to do, which is on the T cell side, we take the T cell, we've knocked out each one of the genes, all 20,000, one at a time, and we ask the effect, if you knock out one gene in that T cell and then put it into a mouse tumor model, does it change the ability of that T cell to kill the tumor? And we've done that 20,000 times, paraphrasing, not quite that simple. <laughs> and then we take those targets, and we're going to look, and again, conventionally, for a drug against those targets. So, so Adam, so... Would you invest? How's that sound? I mean, <laughs> I mean, like, when you hear that, I mean, so he's, you know, much earlier in the, in the, in the process, he's got some results. You know, it doesn't have results like Craig was talking about with the RNAi, uh, but, you know, does that, does, does, is that exciting, or do you say, eh, I, I hear that every day? I mean, what... Before, before uh, Adam weighs in on, on this, David and I should talk, because... <laughs> Over dinner. Over dinner. You know, he's, he's talking about doing the drug discovery the old-fashioned way, but you already have the target. What if we can knock down the gene with an SIRNA and knock it out pretty much completely for long enough to kill the cancer cell and then it's gone. So, right? so a totally easy path to drug development because we know how to make the SIRNAs. They're totally different now than they were 
10, 15 years ago, the chemistry around building these is really matured. So there's like, they've been engineered to really hope now go after cancer. I think this is another way of using siRNAs and it would fit very nicely with the strategy. <laughs> so this is why I love the industry. So he's exactly right. And what we're doing to look for a drug that we can give a patient orally or intravenously, there's a new way of treating cancers, which is they're taking the cells out of the body and you, these are called CAR-Ts. You may have heard them. That's, everything has its little uh, name. But um, you can take the cells out and then make changes to them and then put them back in with the hope that the change you made increases their ability to kill the tumor. So you take out the T cells and you edit them. And exactly what Craig said. So with the, one of the interesting... So we're doing exactly what he's talking about, which is to say, do we want to do a CRISPR edit, which would be a permanent edit of those T cells? Now, maybe there's some safety risk, right? So if we permanently change that T cell and then you put it back in the body and things don't go quite the way we thought, you can't turn it off. But what if we used the siRNA approach to edit it, and which is transient. As he said, you don't permanently change the message. And so we put it in, and it's just a cancer, right? We don't want it there for your lifetime. We just want it there long enough to kill the cancer. So these are exactly the kinds of questions we want you know, to answer. I, I just thought, you know, this discussion just saved a couple hundred million dollars. <laughs> <laughs> it happened at the Athenaeum. You brought there us go. together. There so I go. actually think 1% <laughs> should then, and then we're... That's right. Which actually, I got to say one thing. So the, the CF Foundation was mentioned, the, the patient organization, which Adam, which they revolutionized um, research for rare diseases at one level because they did a lot of things well. But the concept of venture philanthropy in a way where as a patient organization, we are going to raise dollars and we are going to drive the research and then we're going to take a piece of it. And they put high-risk dollars at work, and they've gotten some high returns, which has made them fabulously wealthy as a patient organization and given them tremendous power to dictate even further the research agenda within the CF. So they took control of their disease, and the net effect is cystic fibrosis in a way. I mean, it's the prototype for what many, many rare diseases are hoping can be achieved. And, and, and it's that point that I'm going to answer the question, yeah. Trent, which I think I, I heard you ask me. And, and the question I'm, I'm going to answer right now is, um, would we invest? It's the age-old question. What makes an investor invest, right? When you see, some, when you see a great new technology, um, you have to make a decision, what's your risk-reward profile? So different investors are comfortable investing at different parts of the process. Where I invest is, is kind of similar to what you just said about the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation. Basic science leads to big ideas. And the role early on when a company is formed around a basic big idea is to open the aperture as wide as they can and say, what are all the opportunities, what are all the value creating things that we can do with this great idea? And there are certain investors that love to invest then. They don't actually have any data, they, don't have, they have a concept, they have some great basic research and they're like, look at all these things we can do. But then there's another type of investor that likes to come in and says, hey, wait a second, guys. You can spend a lot of money opening the aperture too wide and trying to invest in everything. But at some point, you have to make a decision and you have to focus. It's called strategy, right? It's called what are you not going to do and what are you going to try to do? 
One of the reasons why the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation was so successful in that example, and another example of this is Children's Hospital in Philadelphia, when they decided they were going to help drive what became Spark Therapeutics, or gene therapy for a, uh, a blindness in children, is to say, we're going to focus all of our resources, and we're going to try to solve a problem that we believe is tractable in a certain period of time. So invest, certain investors, and I would include myself in that subset of investors, want to understand what's the capital required, what's the time it's likely going to take, and what are the, the de-risking elements that are going to be dissolved with the amount of capital and time that we're talking about. And when we talk to a CEO that says, we have a great new technology, we think it can work all over the place, but we're going to focus in these one, two, or three things, and this is how much money we think we need to achieve a specific tangible de-risking event, an inflection point. That's when a lot of investors want to get involved. So when they saw the vision that Vertex and the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation had, they pulled money there. When they understood what Al Nylon was doing, not in 50 diseases, but John Maringanori did a really good job of defining five or six diseases and put TTR in the lead, and that's, that's, that's what this disease is going to be. That really gives comfort to investors like me to say, if we provide this capital, it's tangible, we can evaluate how, what met, we can evaluate by metrics, what is happening, is it working, is it not working, and when we see it work, we can provide even more capital at a higher scale. So if it asks the question, are we comfortable investing in these big ideas? Yeah, we're definitely comfortable investing in these big ideas. Mm -hmm. Because frankly, there are tangible examples where these big ideas are really creating diagnostics and therapeutics that are affecting the human condition, the, the unmet medical needs that we talked about. But it's really important that we understand the focus of the company and the idea that they are going to achieve something that's tractable in a, in a concrete period of time. Let me ask you, the three of you, about sort of the, a, a question about the culture of biotechnology. This is an evening talking about biotechnology in Boston. Um, what, what's your feeling about why Boston has emerged as it has? You know, any other city could have. But why has Boston just uh, kind of emerged as such a center for, for biotech in terms of research, investment, and companies? Well, I can, I can tell you it's not because the commute is, is easy. <laughs> Check, check. I don't think it's working. Can you hear me in back? Check, check. check, check. There you go. That's I was making a joke. I think it was working. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think it when I want to come into Boston, it's basically a two hour, it doesn't matter where I'm driving. <laughs> I'm starting at Newton, it takes me two hours. Boston area. <laughs> but uh, actually, you know, I, I think it's the, you know, the, the academic institutions are obviously driving uh, a lot of the, you know, the building of, of, of the whole biotech sector around Harvard, MIT, and we'd like to think UMass, you know, Worcester's not that far. Uh, but there's definitely, you know, we're often like number two in the state, and that's saying a lot in terms of our income from our inventions at UMass Medical School out of Worcester. And uh, we're, we're uh, you know, right up there with MIT and Harvard. But I think it's the academic institutions. There's really a huge amount of really important basic science that goes on. There's a lot of ideas that are generated in academia that lead to uh, those early stage uh, companies. And you know, what better place to start up a company than where there are a lot of freshly trained young people who you can hire into the, you know, those ground floor positions in the company. So 
you know, it's it's really important to continue to invest in the, the academic institutions. And luckily, Boston is very rich in, in that area. So. Yeah, I agree. I, there's four things I think about when I think what makes a great ecosystem and why the Boston-Cambridge ecosystem has exploded in the last 20 years. Um, it's vision, it's people, it's capital, and it's the physical assets of the ideas, right? Assets can be tangible and intangible as the ideas. Um, you know, there are, and vision comes from certain visionaries, and I think we had certain visionaries here one of them is, I know, a mentor to many people I see around this room is Henry Tremere, right? I mean, you had an extremely successful company, and Henry just had a, he was a force, and he, he created greatness with Genzyme, but he, if you actually ask the question, how many Genzyme people are now in other companies? I mean, I'm making this up again, but it's probably 50% of all the great companies, probably higher than that, have some sort of Genzyme backing, and Biogen as well, right? So there were, and that was Phil Sharp and, and all the history, the 40-year history of Biogen. But those are not the companies, those are the companies that started it and the visionaries and the people that created it. But that attracted then the capital. But then I think the second most important thing to the visionary are the people or the teams that can be created. Because, you know, a bad team will destroy a good asset, for sure. I've seen it happen many times. But a great team will be able to pivot on initially a flawed asset. And a lot of times people talk about what makes a great investment, and a great investment is two things. A great investment is first the future free cash flow that you think will come out in the, in the future that's from the asset that you have. And the second thing is the belief that the investor has that that future free cash flow will be replicated over and over and over again. And that actually has more value. And the comfort that the investor has in making sure there's that multiple is the people involved. And for whatever reason, I think it is Harvard and MIT and UMass and Tufts and Brandeis and all these great academic institutions we have, is the fact that then you had some of these companies like Genzyme and Biogen and now Omylum and Agios and Vertex. And then that kind of pulled all the people that want to work in these companies are here. And then you have this kind of flow. There's a flow of great ideas. And go have lunch in Cambridge or now where Vertex is in the seaport, and all people are talking about is the next great idea. You're going to have, just like you heard the conversation here, well, we're thinking about doing something this way, and you're like, well, actually, if you think about it this way, it'd actually be better, and then companies make collaborations, and it's a web, it's an ecosystem. And I'll tell you, Philadelphia's trying to do this to a varying degree, New York City's trying to do this to a varying degree, Seattle, San Francisco, but it seems like it's really happened in, in, in Boston. So I'd say it's the capital, the visionary, the people and the people talking amongst each other, and it's also the assets. And the assets do happen to come from MIT and Harvard and UMass and, and all these great institutions. So that, that's why I think Boston is so rich in this mm -hmm. ecosystem. David? Yeah, the only thing I, I agree with all these points, um, it, it's a virtual circle thing, and it's, which is why there's a lot of other places with great universities that you know, are struggling to get started. So Boston got started, and you need all those pieces. Um, the second thing, which just... Uh, if you think back again to the history of the uh, biopharmaceutical industry and the cycles it's gone through, you know, there was a big period of time where um, the goal was to buy the next invention, right? So I'm going to have a massive research budget and I'm going to take some really smart people and I'm going to put them in the middle of a field and isolate them and give them that money and I'm going to get a new drug. And I, I think the conclusion was that has failed spectacularly. Um, and so 
You know, these big research campuses are all being closed and all of the big companies are moving to Boston where they can integrate with these others. And, it, and if you think about why that would happen, it's not that the people weren't smart or they didn't have money. It's that that initial discovery, in a sense, is a probability. It's a percentage gameplay. So, you know, we always thought, I think our Genzyme history uh, early on was, we knew that the probability we would discover the next great drug was extremely small, because those were the statistics. But you tried, because in the process of trying, we wanted to be cutting-edge, world-class scientists, but it was being a world-class scientist that allowed us to connect with this massive labyrinth of academic labs and small early biotech startups, where somewhere in the world, the next great idea is going to pop. That is a certainty. The challenge as a company is to connect with that. And so you come to a place like Boston or Cambridge, and you are just changing the probabilities that I'm going to connect with that in a more efficient way. Let me ask you um, a, a couple questions about trends in the business um, and maybe where you sort of see them going in the future. Um, one big concern about these drugs that are coming out is price. So um, there are CF drugs that cost over $300,000 per patient per year, for example. Um, maybe we could talk a bit about how, how, that has, how we've ended up in this situation with some of these super expensive drugs and whether, the, the, you know, and whether those costs are going to continue to increase or are they going to go down or what's going to happen in the future with that? Am I allowed to sound defensive? Or? You can just answer it however you want. <laughs> Well, uh, you know, the costs are always high when you have a new uh, therapeutic modality because you're, you're paying for the development of, you know, the, the, this incredibly groundbreaking new way of delivering a drug. It may not cost that much to make it, but it costs a lot to develop it, so the companies have to get something back on their investment. So I think it's understandable. The prices are going to come down, and, and you know, there's going to be competition. Uh, SIRNAs, you know, they're, those are, you know, very, I don't know what Long Island is going to price their drug at, but I know that to make a, a year-long supply per patient is a few dollars, you know, because once you're producing these at scale, the amount that any individual needs is really small. I don't think John wants you to say I don't think John wants to say that. But, but, you know, we could order it and have it made by a company. And they they would charge us you know a few thousand dollars we could make enough to dose you know everybody in this room. Um, so it's not that it's that expensive to make these. You know when you start talking about therapies like the CAR T cells or personalized, you know you're taking somebody some patient's own T cells out, modifying them, putting them back. That's a very labor intensive and difficult procedure. And, and there you know there'll be better ways of doing that in the future as well. But I think. If you really want breakthrough new therapies, and I think we all want that, you got to be ready to pay the price, at least initially, for those therapies. The real conundrum, I think, is when you have, you know, a sick child with some leukemia that's treatable now, but it costs four hundred thousand dollars to treat, and this kid doesn't have any money. What are we going to do? I mean, who's going to reimburse the hospital? It's going to go broke. And, and those are real costs because in the CAR-T area, for example, those are real, I mean, people have to work in a laboratory with that patient's cells to develop the, the therapy. So 
you know, I think there is a real conundrum, and I think we need to have a really hard look at that because I think it would be immoral not to treat these patients. And I think, you know, unfortunately, it's not obvious how we're going to pay for it. Yes, I, I have a couple points to make on this. This is a very serious topic, and I, you know, I spent a lot of time thinking about it because when you're an investor, you make certain assumptions about price, and price leads directly to your gross margins. And when you change price, it's a very, it has a very linear effect for those of you in business, kind of driving down to your bottom line. And if you if you cut price by fifty percent, that has an immediate fifty percent impact on your on your net margins, which is not comforting if you think that there's a risk of that. So definitely think about this a lot. I think the debate has been taken away from the industry. I think the industry has not done an effective job, either the pharma industry or the bio industry, in really kind of setting the agenda for what this debate should be. So number one, you, you, you alluded to it. Uh, the first argument is it costs upwards of a billion dollars to get an approved drug on the market. Right. So, and that is risk capital. And if you want to continue to encourage people to put in that risk capital, you have to encourage return or else that risk capital will go away. Number two is the fact it's, it's like an economic contract with society. Because the way that, the reason why pricing is a bit out of control is because you are given an artificial monopoly for a short period of time, a relatively short period of time, typically 20 years, but it, it takes you 10 years to develop the drug. So you have on average, I'd say, 8 to 12 years of, of a time to actually capture price. In which case, the vast majority of drugs, and that's going to become an even vaster majority soon with the, with the direction that things are going, you're basically giving it to society for free. You know, an example of this would be the cholesterol drugs, right? Everybody thought that Merck and Pfizer and Bristol-Myers, they were raping society, charging, and I'm making this up, $5,000 a year to be on a cholesterol drug. And, and they got a lot, a lot of people on these drugs, and they proved that they actually expand your life, right? They actually reduced mortality. Now those drugs are free. Right? I mean, it's literally pennies for you to take one of the top Lipitor drug. So you only have, a, you, the, you, the company, only have a certain number of years where you're capturing economic value, and then you're transferring all that economic value to society. And the last point is, what is the effect you're actually having? So I think there was a lot of discussion when the hepatitis C drugs came out. It was a lot of like, oh, Gilead is so terrible, they're charging $80,000. Gilead was curing 95 to even higher, 98% of the people that they were touching with their drugs for a, a disease that would cause liver fibrosis, liver cancer, and premature death. And the only solution at the time before they were direct acting antivirals was for you to take a year off of your life, a young person, 40-year-old, 50-year-old, you can't work, go on a weekly interferon, which would make you have the flu, for three days of every week, you couldn't function as a person, and you had a 30% chance of being cured. And they shifted that to a greater than 95% chance of not having the disease anymore, no longer needing to be treated, and then there was competitive pressure that came in, and the cost now of getting those eight-week treatments to eradicate your hepatitis C virus is probably thirty or $35,000. That's a bargain. Okay, but yet there was the New York Times and the Washington Post and, you know, all of them had all these articles how Gilead's doing such a terrible job and how they really hurt society. No, they massively helped society, but they didn't capture the argument. The new, the new component of the next hep C is going to be gene therapy. And some of these gene therapies are coming out, and you're going to see prices. Why, why, just take a moment just to explain what you mean by gene therapy as opposed to the antiviral. 
Right. So gene therapy. So I think what we've heard both with, well, CRISPR is a little bit different. What we certainly heard with siRNA is a, is a loss of function, is a, is a situation where there's a bad protein in the body, and you want to use, you want to put something in to stop that bad protein from being expressed, a, a loss of function activity. There are also a lot of diseases where you're missing something, and you want to do a gain of function activity. That's your goal. And so gene therapy has now come in the press a lot, where you can enable someone to have a gain of function. And guess what? With some of this gene therapy, not all of it, but some of this gene therapy, um, both similar to the CAR-Ts you were talking about, but also direct acting where you actually give someone a terrible virus for a short period of time, they get better from having flu-like symptoms and a fever, and then you've actually used the viral mechanism to infect them with a missing gene that then can be pretty permanent, not known it's going to be completely permanent, but, but for, for sake of this discussion, at least 10 years are pretty permanent. So it's a one-time treatment for you to try to solve the problem of a disease that was likely going to kill that person in the near term. And so you ask, what is the cost of trying to use symptomatic treatments or trying to help them every year for a period of time? And we can go into the numbers for a specific disease. But right now, it's basically going to cost two to three times for a one-time treatment that it currently costs to annually treat somebody with a disease like Duchenne muscular dystrophy. And you may have actually controlled it, if not cured it, for greater than 10 years. So if you say that you, and you are going to hear numbers like a million dollars for a treatment, and I'm sure the big press is going to be out there and saying, how can these companies charge a million dollars? But when you go and ask the question, what's the impact they're having? Even if you talk about the cost reduction impact of having to care for these patients if they didn't have the disease, some of this is going to be really worthwhile. But I'll end by saying that there is no question that we as an ecosystem are not doing ourselves a service because there are also examples of really misuse of pricing, right? And we all know what they are. And there's some, there's some grand examples of embarrassing examples. So I think what we need to do as a community is to really govern ourselves to eliminate or massively reduce these bad examples, but really tell the story much better for why hepatitis C drugs were so valuable and why some of these gene therapies are so valuable. And that will encourage future companies to continue to make direct acting antivirals and continue to make the gene therapies for the next terrible diseases. David, I don't know if you want to add anything to that. <laughs> <laughs> so I spent 20 years talking about pricing, um, having come out of a company, Genzyme, which uh, was known for its high priced drugs. Now they look so, like a bargain. Do I have two minutes? Can I take two sure. minutes? Sure, sure. Um, I, I think the challenge is, uh, and both Greg and Adam have highlighted, pricing is incredibly complex. And we talk about pricing like it's one thing. If we could just fix pharmaceutical pricing, everything would be okay. And, and the reality, of course, is there's a thousand examples and situations which inform that one statement, if we could fix pharmaceutical pricing. So first, the bad acting, right? So there's the headlines, the Martin Shrekley went to jail, took a cheap old generic drug and increased it 500-fold or whatever, because he could. Okay, that's a rare example. Not that he's the only one, but that's not the issue. What is an issue is many companies, I've been part of some of those companies, in a public company world where your earnings are, mod, you know, you have to report your earnings every quarter, one of the ways you can manage that challenge is you raise your prices. And the thing that has hurt our industry the most has been 
the quarter or the yearly price increases without adding any additional value to the therapy. It's a very easy way to solve your earnings problem. It's a devastating hit to society and the healthcare system. So that has to change, and I think we, as an industry, are beginning to tackle that, and you're, getting to, you're starting to see more and more examples of some self-regulation, and I desperately hope that we can self-regulate ourselves back to the right place before somebody else steps in and regulates us, because that fact is going to devastate the willingness of people like Adam to invest in our industry, and that is going to mean that the cure for Alzheimer's is going to be pushed off for sure a number of years. So we've got to fix the bad. Now, the other thing that people don't understand about high prices is they say, oh my God, there's going to be a gene therapy for these kids with a rare eye disease, and it's going to be a million dollars a year, and it's going to break the bank. The reality is, I'm making a guess here, 50% of the kids who need that gene therapy were treated in the trials. It's a one-time treatment. They'll never be a customer. The company has to follow and collect data on those patients forever because it's a new therapy, but they're never going to get a return for them. They had to pay for the opportunity to treat them. And those few other patients have to be found and treated. Rare disease pricing, which has to be high, but it's all about rarity. It's not that you're going to treat 50 million people with high cholesterol and charge them a million dollars. You're going to cheat a few hundred people, maybe a thousand. And so understanding how this works. Now, where does rare disease pricing get abused? Rare disease pricing gets abused when a company comes in and says, I'm an orphan drug. And an orphan drug is, using U.S. definitions, anything less than 200,000 people are affected. Now, I talked about charging a million for a few hundred people. A few hundred thousand when there's 5,000 people. But if I have 200,000 people to treat, I would argue that doesn't mean you should be charging the same price as a drug that can only treat 5,000 people, because you do need to recover. Now, I'm going to finish by, then you have the hepatitis C example that Adam talked about. Incredible drug, 95% cure rates. In fact, on a patient-by-patient -patient basis, the, the, the value you can justify the $80,000. What happened there, where industry mishandled it, we didn't communicate well, and the company did not educate and prepare the system, is when you get a cure for an infectious disease, and this could happen for some cancers, all the people in the world put their hand up in the first year. So it's not that it was incredibly expensive per patient, it's that every patient wanted to be treated in year one. And on top of that, Half of the people, large number, whatever, were in our Medicare, Medicaid system, in jails and whatever. And so the governments, we got bankrupted, or the, we were worried about being bankrupted because of the timing of the hit. And so again, what I would ask you to lead about, when you hear drug pricing, just ask the next question. What are you talking about? Which setting, right? How does this apply to me? Because there's so many layers to that whole piece of the world. So um, we, we're, we're going to have time for questions, um, and uh, uh, you'll just raise your hand and just speak loudly, and I'll repeat the question. But um, uh, yeah, if someone asks me a question, yeah. So so we'll we'll put you at the podium if 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 you, if you want to talk to you, or you can just scream. Um, 
But I just have one last question, which is um, there was an interesting article in the Boston Globe like a month ago asking whether the Boston was going to be seeing a biotech bubble. You know, just in the, because there's, this explosion is so remarkable in the past few years, um, and and you're you're hearing about people having to sort of move further and further out to set up space and so on. Um, so just looking ahead, you know, 10 or 20 years, do you see Boston as being sort of in the long term, just just continuing with the, with this kind of uh, regional growth, or is there a legitimate concern that it's it's it, this this run up is kind of a bubble? Well. Um, I, if you can hear, if you can't hear me in the back, speak up and I'll go over to the podium. But my feeling is that there is a revolution in genetics and genomics. It's driven, you know, we didn't really talk about it. It's driven by genomics. You know, you've all heard about getting your DNA sequenced. You can now, personal, your personal genetics is now something that's important for your doctor to know for many different indications you know, cancer being one, but there are many others. So obviously there's a huge growth right now in uh, biology, really. In the, in, we're, we're still very much in the beginning of assimilating all, an incredible amount of information related to the underlying genetic causes of diseases. And for that matter, things like aging. We are just beginning to understand the genetic drivers of many, many diseases that are that are huge unmet medical needs. That is going to require this industry to grow dramatically because there are going to be great opportunities to intervene. And you've heard it, you know, the, the idea of making smarter drugs, you know, drugs that use the body's own systems, things like the, the T cells being used to, to hunt down and kill every single last cancer cell, using the cell search engine to find the misexpressed genes, using a bacterial enzyme, this Cas9, to go in and precisely genome edit. I mean, this is much bigger than I think uh, any one city could hold, and we actually hope that a lot of investment will start happening out in Worcester. <laughs> we've, got, we've got a really nice medical campus there. With no traffic. <laughs> Seriously, I mean, it's way bigger than, than Boston can handle, you know. And I, Boston's going to try, but it's going to choke on it because it's huge. You know, so we really do have to spread the investment around a little bit. And, uh, and I think there's going to be plenty of opportunity. I think it's also really important that the federal government continue to invest in the basic science because, you know, sequencing the human genome was just the beginning. That gave us an opportunity to begin to understand the genetic basis of disease, the federal government flat-funded all of research after the genome was finished. Flat-funded us for like 10, 15, I mean, now we're getting a little bit of an uptick, but we were cut off from any increase right when we had this wealth of new information to explore. We need to continue to invest not only in the private side and developing therapies, but also in the long haul in the very basic kind of science that gives you something new like Cas9. This CRISPR thing was discovered in 2012 in bacteria. So really exciting.
Yeah, I, I, I think I understand your thesis or the, the point of the Boston Globe, and I, I do have some concern. Look, I'm not a macroeconomist, but I will, I will opine for a moment. But, but, you know, I don't know a lot about what I'm talking about here. But <laughs> it seems to me sometimes communities um, continue to think that they're going to move up in a linear fashion. When they've had success, like, oh, it's going to continue this way. The rate of growth cannot possibly be sustained in the Boston-Cambridge ecosystem. You know, if I told you what the cost was now versus five years ago on a, on, a, on a square footage basis to have space in Cambridge, it's ridiculous, right? And the people that are paying for this, right, the, the investors that are paying, say, why do you have to be in Kendall Square at $85 a square foot when you can be in Bedford for $35 a square foot or out in Worcester for maybe $25 a square foot? <laughs> so that's point one. It's just, it's just the, the ecosystem is. But the second point is the democratization of ideas. We talked about this a little bit. When, when it was the Pfizer's and the Merck's, and there were like 10 global companies, and they tried to own all of research and discovery and development, and that system broke, because you said you want that kind of pirate ship out there. You want that great independent thinker. And in a way, what we've created here is like this, this monolithic community, but there's many other communities, and they are so incentivized to compete and attract talent and give tax incentives. So it's not only the Austin areas in Texas, and, and we talked about Philadelphia and Baltimore, and Research Triangle, and Seattle, and, 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 and St. Louis, and, and the areas in Michigan. They're all trying to attract these dollars. But I'd argue that it's becoming global, right? I mean, you know, disease is global. People that need to be cured of disease is global. And guess what? Innovation is global. And we've had such a, a bias towards, and I don't exactly know why it's been that way, but the United States has just had so much of this uh, funding and activity that's gone on. But Europe is desperately trying to catch up. And the Chinese government is trying to totally drive funding into China. And companies like Beijing are actually doing really well. So I think you're going to see more of this. So I don't think that the Boston community should assume that we're going to remain the center of the biopharmaceutical ecosystem. I hope we remain a leader, right? I'm, I'm tied to Boston in a loving way, and I think it's an incredible community. But I think we have to recognize that you know, we have to sustain it, and so we have to change and we have to know that like, not, it's not always going to be so easy. And it's really hard for the real, it's really hard to assume that real estate's going to continue to grow the way it's been growing. <laughs> and, and good luck trying to drive into Cambridge. I mean, it's. Uh, sir, you had your hand up. So um, I would like to further expand on your thoughts about the location of biotech. So, as somebody who works in biotech, um, I've heard this conversation a lot from the investment side of people. The money people say, why pay $85 a square foot when you could be out of Worcester for 15 years ago Lexington? And I would like to say it's because that's where the talent is. And I think the number one driver for success in your company is winning the world of talent. And all the people that I know in the industry, they want to be in Cambridge um, because the quality of life is better, and that's where all the other talented people also want to work. And so I think it's important as an investor to understand not to just drop the bottom line, but realize the reason that the real estate is valuable is because that's where the talent is, and that's where the highest quality of success in your company will be. No, I, 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 yeah, I don't think it's great. So um, I've been in seven startup companies. Um, four have been successful, so I guess I'm batting about Hank Aaron. But I think the key to success in that was recruiting the right team. And now as I pivot into the next startup, um, one of the things we're really considering is geography, and using geography as a tool and the Cambridge sort of pleasant working environment as a tool to recruit the top. So the point being that, that 
location is attractive and that people location is destiny. Where's KSQ Center? Kendall Square, right? There are hundreds and hundreds of companies in Kendall Square and we are KSQ, but um, <laughs> I'm not quite sure how that happened. No, I, I, I agree with you. I mean, I, you know, Adam's point is, the, as an investor, you have to ask that question. As a company, you have to answer it. Um, it is true for us. Um, I think, you know, we, we have a young company, and um, clearly the people we have attracted um, is, we would lose some, and maybe some important people, by uh, moving outside of Cambridge. So you, you, you weigh that. Um, well, I think it's it's supply and demand. I think you said it well. I think, of course, it's very it's it's great to be in Kendall Square, but when the amount of money it costs you to live in Kendall Square makes it prohibitive for a lot of the basic researchers to live there, so they have to live, you know, in the North Shore or further out west. And you know, Cambridge has done a lot of great things to encourage growth. Uh, one of the things they've proactively not done, and I remember talking to the CEO of Biogen about this for a time, they've, done, they've had terrible infrastructure in terms of getting roads in and out, and they've not done a great job with parking, right? So they've not made it very amenable to get people in and out. And, you know, you can take those dollars that you're spending um, on the real estate and take those dollars that your employees are spending to physically pay for gas and the hours they're in their car and all that and say to them, look, we'll give it to you in higher salaries and we'll set up a bus system to take you where we're going to go or we're going to go to a different city. I mean, I'm not saying that Cambridge isn't the greatest place to do it. I agree with you. I think Cambridge is the best place to be. But if I'm starting up a new company, and if you know one of the bubbles that may burst, and we didn't get to this, but I, I have concerns about the public markets and the, pri and the private markets, you know, it, it, things are overvalued right now. Well, let me just say, things are very fully valued. And don't tweet that out. <laughs> Don't tweet out that Koppel said that things are overvalued. I didn't say that. But I'll say things are fully valued. Very fully valued. Very fully valued. And if that goes down, and if the great, and one of the things that, is, that has made Cambridge so great, and I'm going to give a huge compliment here, so take this as a major compliment, is the fact that Atlas and Flagship and Third Rock and Polaris and MPM and Claris, and I'm sure I'm missing some of the great ones, they're all right there. They don't like to move. And so if you want to meet with Doug Cole, it's great that you're across the street, right? Or John Francois wants to set up a new company. He's going to set it up that's convenient for him. But, you know, that's going to expand as well. So all I'm saying is that I think that we need to be aware that we are in a great ecosystem, but we should evolve, right? And we shouldn't assume that it's just going to stay right here in a five-minute radius, uh, and we don't have to kind of look outside. Uh, sir, you had your hand up. Do you think that the conflict of interest policies of academic institutions have or will interfere or impede with the relationship of industry or force migration to industry? So the question was about uh, the issue of conflict of interest in, in, in academia and, and how that will affect um, uh, uh, the, this things going in industry. Should be your next book. It's a really good topic. Okay. <laughs> Duly noted. Look, I mean, you can look at the difference between Harvard and MIT for the perceived conflict. I mean, I mean, you should probably go. I mean, you're in it. Oh yeah, but I'd, well, I'd like to hear what you have to say about Harvard and MIT. <laughs> <laughs> I always start there when I hear about conflict of interest. Uh, look, there. Are, I, I actually have. I actually have sat on a number of panels. Um, in the Boston community, actually more so outside the Boston community. I've been in St. Louis, Philadelphia, New York, um, 
with major academic institutions trying to understand why is Boston so successful and what can we do to facilitate more kind of, you know, university, private market collaboration. Um, some people, some of the institutions just have it in their genes to be collaborative and recognize that they can be, they can be a challenge to work with, right? I would say, I think MIT is much easier to work with with the outside world with private uh, capital and with company formation than Harvard is. And I would say that UPenn used to be really challenging and they really kind of quickly changed um, their approach. Actually, I think one of the reasons why UPenn has changed so quickly is their nemesis, Children's Hospital Philadelphia, put $40 million of risk capital in this company, Spark, and got a $600 million return in three years. So I think they said, wow, there's something to this conflict of interest, and maybe we can figure out that conflict of interest if we can turn $40 million into $600 million and actually create a drug that, that, that cures people of blindness. I, I think that you know you, we're soon going to see closer and closer interplay between university academic setting and the private market and risk capital. And one of the reasons why I think it's so important, and I think presidents of universities are appreciating this, is, is twofold. First, the cost and time and risk required to actually convert the basic science that we were talking about into practical applicability and get the returns to come back. And second, and this is a bit more controversial, so don't overhear what I'm about to say. These universities have just gotten outrageous endowments. I mean, if you really think about how much capital is being tied up, the tens of billions of dollars by Harvard and Princeton and Yale, and by the way, these are the, these are the organizations that invest in me to invest in all this ecosystem, so I, so I don't want to be tweeted on that either. But, you know, and they're tax-free right now, right? And there is the same people that are thinking about why are drug prices so high are also asking the question, why are all these pools of capital being enabled to grow on a tax-free basis? And one of the questions is, is that should these universities be forced to kind of plow back some of this into risk capital? And so I do think you are going to see a change, I think, I hope, that you will see a change that some of these endowments are not just going to look for their 6 to 10% returns in the top investors and T-bills and bonds and all that, but they may start investing in their own research and it could really help the outside investor because in the same way when you saw the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation say they're going to invest there, a lot of capital followed it. Imagine if the fellows of Harvard University, if the endowment of Harvard said, we're going to put tens of millions of dollars to certain programs that we have had the basic science within Harvard or UMass or MIT or UPenn or WashU in St. Louis, we're going to invest behind this because they have, the, they have the most righteous inside information. They know who those professors are. They have accessed all the information. And if they start investing alongside, you will see massive amounts of external capital follow them. And then I think they'll realize that it's not a conflict of interest. It's actually an encouragement of interest to kind of focus the capital on the right ideas. That, that, that may be heresy, so that last thing I said <laughs> is a hypothesis, and I don't think we're going to see that in the next five years, but I do think taking to the extreme, that's where it should go. Yeah, I, I just want to add, though, that I think it is a real balancing act because at some, somewhere, somehow, you know, the public needs to know that an academics, you know, is giving you their scientific, real opinion. You know, this isn't, you know, like, if you, if, if you knew that your dean was going to give you $50 million to do your research if you told them, you know, that it would, you know, maybe if you embellished a little bit on... I'm going to cure cancer. You know, 
you, you can lose that objectivity. So I, I do think balancing the objectivity that academia normally should bring, but yet making it possible for institutions to, you know, invest. Maybe you have to make them hold their investments longer or something. I, I don't know, but you have to do something to make sure that you're safeguarding that uh, role of the academic scientist as someone who is um, unbiased. You know, and obviously, if you happen to be a founder of a company, you're going to be you know, disqualified in a way. But, but um, it, it's, it's a real balancing act. You know, and so, I yeah, so let me uh, jump on that. So I, I think this is a, uh, a huge issue. I mean, it used to be, and you know this better than I do, I mean, you go into academia, and the currency of academia is publications. Right? I work to do my research so I can publish and then get whatever rewards recognition comes with that being published. Today's world, if you have an idea and you're in a somewhat sophisticated setting, you're going to start a company. Right? And if you want to, the thing you want to be looking out for is the distortion, the distorting effect of money. Right? It's just for faith. So on the industry side, if I'm a small company and I have one project I'm working on and it's not working, I am desperately trying to figure out how to keep it alive. I don't turn around and just say, oh, that's too bad, didn't work, and walk <laughs> out the door, right? I mean, we are in a for-profit venture model money being centralized. Now academia is moving to that side, the number of distinguished academicians who do not have a link with a company is shrinking. And I might argue it's relatively small. And that's a very, no matter, these are principled people, we're all, we're all principled people, it's very hard not to be influenced by the money. I don't care how objective you are. So I think this is a challenge for us. Yeah, I'd like to see longer patent lifetimes or something because that's a really, you know, these patents are always expiring before you get a drug. You know, why not a 50-year or something? Then the institutions would really have a chance. <laughs> maybe just for the institutions. Yeah. Maybe the companies would all would stay with the uh, shorter. But so I got another. It's it's a great it's a great question. Last one, ma'am. You had your hand up. What are the factors in the Boston area that hasn't been discussed much is the fact that there are all these important academic institutions and huge billions of dollars of NIH grants going to these institutions so that arguably the U.S. government has already contributed in a big way to develop a number of these, these um, drugs. Now, it requires, of course, further development and and clinical trials. But I, I wish you would talk a little bit about that and about how. I, I think that, you know, St. Louis is not going to replace Boston because they don't have all of these wonderful institutions all right here with all of these people. Anyway. Can, can I? So, so just to, the, the, question, the question was talking, uh, touching on the fact that, that much much of, the, of this work is coming out of basic research, which is funded with taxpayer money. So how does that, what are your feelings on, on that and, and, and what that means for the, the issues we've been talking about just now? Yeah, no, it's a great question, and it is a, a common perception. Um, so the grants are a reality. This system needs to be seeded. 
And I think all of us in the ecosystem have fear that NIH funding would be cut and we would lose that seeding effect, right? The, the, the new researcher who's trying to get their first grant and you know, can't get funded. I mean, that's a real concern for the health of the overall ecosystem. When you get to the individual drugs, um, you highlighted there's enormous amount of work that needs to be done after that initial piece. But the other thing is industry is putting a lot of money back into these academic institutions and is in many ways replacing where NIH and government is following. So we have to license the, the discovery. We don't get it for free. That institution then gets milestones and royalties and the Spark example or others, in some cases, just like you know any venture cap, when they hit on a discovery, that's an enormous revenue stream back. So I would make the argument that industry is paying it back in. Somebody's got to start the circle. So the NIH starts the circle with their grant and seeding it. But in fact, they are seeding the ability of, of industry to then feed back in and amplify their initial investment. My numbers are about five years old. But the, I think the total NIH budget, annual budget for all of it is, I think, 33 or 34 billion dollars. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> If you take the top 30 global biopharma companies, I think their R&D spend is $140 billion. And if you were to just stop at that 33 or $34 billion, that's all very basic research. If you didn't incentivize the risk capital community to come in and take kind of like that early stage and blow it out to do that, that high cost animal studies and clinical studies, no, it, it wouldn't be done. And I, and I think you're right. I mean, the, the economic benefit both back to the country that has the tax basis of all these multi-billion dollar companies that are selling the drugs. But also, a point that, that, I, that I meant to make earlier and I didn't, that I think it's lost in this economic debate, is also back of the envelope and probably five years old. We spend about $3 trillion a year in healthcare in this country. And I think drugs and therapeutics is of somewhere between 12 and 15% of that. And other than the year where the hepatitis C drugs came out, and, and you're right, it, was, it wasn't communicated well, and there was a, bump, there was a bit of a, a step function there. With the exception of that, growing it 3% or less, right? The drug industry is not growing that much. And the reason why it's not growing that much is because so many of these big blockbuster drugs become generic, right? So the, the benefit back to society is these drugs become close to free after a certain period of time. It's only, let's say, 15% of the total healthcare cost, and it's an incredibly efficient way to give healthcare. So if the government didn't have these therapies coming out, they're actually in a longer term are gonna reduce the cost of ultimate care. That's, that's an opinion. But I think you're, you're spot on that there is, that the, this stuff is being seeded by the government. Um, and so the question is, how is the government getting their return? I think there are good arguments made that the government is getting their return. But there's certainly good arguments made as to like, should the biopharma industry be you know, paying it back more explicitly than maybe they are. But clearly, you know, in intangible ways, they, they, they probably clearly are. Yeah, I mean, the, ret the return on investment for the um, government uh, investment in research is, is something like seven to one, you know, depending. The NIH tries to measure this, but it's really hard to measure because when you start talking about a return on investment that comes 20, 30 years, like we discovered RNA interference, in 1998, and we had NIH funding, now finally 20 years later, there's gonna be a drug approved. You know, it just takes too long, and it's hard to figure out exactly how much it costs to make those initial investments. It's easier to measure the public company's investment, but without the initial investment, 
you lose the whole the whole thing falls apart. So and there are a lot of there are a lot of governments, and China is a good one where I, I go to China quite frequently, and I see what they're doing. They're in, they're pouring money into biotechnology. They're pouring it in. They're not pouring it very well. It's, <laughs> they're pouring it in. And you know, so we really are. They're going to eat our lunch unless we pay attention. That's, right. That's exactly right. Keep playing. You know, keep investing. All right. Well, uh, that's that's all we have time for. So let's give a hand to our panelists. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.